I'm Martin McKee. I'm Professor of European Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And you were one of the authors of the manifesto. I wonder if you could uh, tell us how it came about. Uh, this came about as a result of discussions between the group of authors. All of us have been working together for many years and we have a common concern about the health of the world's population and the challenges that we face as the human race and as a planet. And we felt it was time to set out an agenda which would try to bring some of these issues together. Really a call for action by the public health community to uh, look at the uh, long-term challenges we face and what we need to do to tackle them. And uh, what's the response been to it like? Like. You know- The response has been overwhelming. A large number of organisations have signed up to it and uh, as have a number of many individuals. And it seems to have catalyzed a a, a sense of uh, something must be done and uh, given people some sort of uh, belief that uh, really we do need some global action to tackle the challenges that we're facing. Now, of course, the difficulty is turning that into action in a world where there are many powerful forces against uh, what we're trying to do. We have to deal with uh, scepticism. We have to deal with downright hostility, uh, denialism and Uh, Also, the simple challenge of uh, the tendency for people to put it all into the too difficult tray. Uh, We are calling for a radically different approach to the way we move forward as a human race, and that will require significant adjustments. As we say, we are calling for an urgent transformation in our values and our practices based on the recognition of our interdependence and the interconnectedness of the risks that we face. Uh, reading around in in other things about the manifesto, there's a term that comes up which I've not come across before, which was social medicine. What's social medicine? Uh, well, social medicine is a term that actually goes back to at least the 1920s and the 1930s. And uh, in more recent years, it's been termed um, public health. Essentially, this is the idea that uh, we should be looking at the health of populations and in particular that governments have a role to play in promoting health. Uh, quite simply put, there is such a thing as society and uh, individuals do need support to make the healthy choices. As has been said before, we all do make choices, but not always in the circumstances of our own choosing. Are you arguing that uh, capitalism is bad for our health? I think if we look back historically, look back to the late 1980s, uh, we saw that the one of the alternatives, communism, clearly was very bad for people's health. Uh, health life expectancy was stagnating under the uh, communist regimes. And uh, I think there's now really no doubt that the model of communism that had been implemented in the Soviet Union and in the countries of Eastern Europe had failed and was rejected by the population. I think if we look at the model of capitalism, um, which, and, and I stress I'm not talking about either of these in their totality, uh, but if we look at the particular model of capitalism that we have at the minute, uh, and we look at the way in which it brought about the economic crisis with um, essentially, as uh, Adair Turner, Lord Turner said, uh, the global stock market serving no socially useful purpose, uh, we can see that that particular model has failed. It's failed in terms of delivering 
bring benefits to the wider population. The US and the UK have seen virtually no increase in median earnings over the last three decades. So it's not working in terms of uh, the economy. It's certainly not working in terms of what the capitalist system was set up to do uh, in terms of promoting investment in the UK at the minute. We have the bizarre situation of uh, a proposal to take over a major knowledge-based company, AstraZeneca, by an American corporation. And uh, it is telling its investors that the prime reason for doing so is to avoid paying tax in the United States, uh, not to discover new drugs, not to promote the betterment of society. So I think that there's no doubt that both the communist system that was in place before 1990 and the capitalist system that led to the economic crisis have both failed abysmally and we need a new way of doing things. Is the model of capitalism that we have at the present time bad for our health? Well, clearly it is, uh, because we're seeing a vastly more unequal society. Uh, people are not sharing equally in the gains. The French economist Thomas Piketty has written a damning critique of uh, the system as it is, uh, showing that things are going to get worse. So although I'm not talking about capitalism in its, its totality, I, I would refer back to the work of people like Adam Smith, who uh, said that uh, the, and, and, you know, he, the he of the invisible hand of the market, and uh, uh, he balanced his call for the um, for, for markets with a, his second book, A Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, recognizing that free markets have many problems. The capitalist system has p p potentially within it the seeds of its own destruction unless it can balance what it is doing with some socially useful purpose. In the manifesto, you write at the end, together with empowered communities, we can confront entrenched uh, uh, interests and forces that jeopardize our future. Um, I mean, I, I'm speaking to you, in, and, and this is uh, for the website for the, for the transition movement, which is thousands of communities now who are very much motivated by exactly the kind of vision that you set out. Uh, is there a case, do you think, that... Uh, that such groups and such initiatives could actually gain more profile and uh, by arguing what they do, not just in terms of sustainability, but in terms of public health. Oh, yes, I think so. And it's a great pity that we haven't had the coalescence of um, uh, of uh, contributions from the environmental community uh, and the public health community. We did see that in the Rio Earth Summit to some extent, but I think we've sometimes lost sight of that. And very much at the heart of what we're advocating is the idea that the two are linked. We cannot have a healthy population without a healthy planet. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the, the, the difficulty is that one, of course, needs to frame one's argument differently for different audiences. And in the past, in the public health community, we have very much focused our um, discussions on the way in which better health is better for the economy. Uh, but we also have to realise that we need to square that circle to some extent. So how can communities, so the, the, that, that quote that I just read is a kind of a call to arms for communities to be involved and be part of this. If people who are doing transition and sort of community energy companies and local food and all that sort of bottom-up uh, resilience building work, read your manifesto and want to support, what can they do to support it? 
Uh, well, the most um, the immediate thing to do is to sign up to it, but we hope that it will inspire them to work with like-minded people uh, to try to bring about a better world. That, that's what's underlying all of this. And I think to realise that those people who want to promote uh, healthier, a safer, healthier, higher quality environment, as well as promote the health of the population, have much in common. We should be working together in some coalition of the willing to try and make the world a better place. I was very interested in the in the bit about um, the idea of unconstrained progress as a dangerous human illusion. You know, with, with people like Matt Ridley's book about the rational optimist and James Dellingpole writing in this week about how young people today have never had it so good and they should stop moaning and just be aware that they live at the pinnacle of civilization. That's a really dangerous, uh, a complacent um, perspective, isn't it? Uh, well, it also ignores the basic laws of physics, and we go back to the issue of entropy. Uh, whenever the Earth was formed, uh, to, without getting too much about geological timescales, um, all sorts of things were uh, distributed in ways that were easily extractable, say rare earths, and uh, obviously petroleum, uh, the the uh, in the Carboniferous period, the uh, vegetable matter that led to uh, the uh, development of, of oil and gas and so on. Now, ultimately, as we take, we redistribute all of these things or use them up in um, from the settings that we're, in which they're constructed, uh, we're not going to be able to use them twice. And uh, inevitably, we will run out of things. Now, we can discuss whether or not we are at peak oil or not. Obviously, we can keep on finding uh, more reserves in more and more difficult places to obtain it, like the Arctic and, and so on. But at some stage, inevitably, we will run out of these things. And it's not just running out of oil. It's running out of some of the things that we depend upon, like tantalum in mobile phones or iridium in, um, in, in GPS devices and things like that. Some of the rare earths that we use in uh, the uh, neodymium and uh, the lanthanides in, in some of the low energy uh, hybrid cars and things like that. Fundamentally, we have to, uh, we, we will end up taking these things from fairly concentrated deposits in the Earth's crust and depositing them into land sites all over the world and not be able to have any economically viable way of extracting them again. That's just an inevitability. Uh, it uh, and I think if we also look at the history of civilizations, and Jared Diamond has written a very good book called Collapse, and uh, he describes how so often in the past, very well-developed civilizations, going back to the Indus Valley and onwards, have actually presided over their own fundamental collapse as they've uh, brought about environmental degradation. So it's reasonable, to, I mean, it's nice that people are optimistic, but it defies the laws of physics and it also defies the historical experience. Um, you, uh, you, you argue that, um, that we see more and more of a, a push towards favouring uh, financial uh, elites. And I wonder what your thoughts were in terms of uh, the need to address that, which is set out very clearly in the manifesto, and what we're seeing happening in the NHS now with it being more and more opened up for <clears throat> for big companies like Serco to come in and, and sort of clean up on. How... Well, yeah, um, I, I have to say I'm rather cynical about um, whether or not Serco will stay for the long run. I think that these corporations have looked at the experience in the United States, which spends 18% of GDP on health, and they think that they can uh, take the same model and apply it to a healthcare system 
in the UK that spends about 9% of a somewhat smaller GDP. And what they're already realising is that in Cornwall and in a number of the contracts they've taken on, they've underpriced the previous NHS provider. They've come in and said that they can do the job for less. And what they're finding is they cannot do the job for less, at least not in a way that is safe and effective. And we've had one scandal after another. Now, these firms operate on a global scale, so they can invest in, they can put their efforts into running bits of the NHS in England, or they can run prisons in Louisiana or Mississippi or somewhere like that, or they can build hotels in uh, developing countries. What we're seeing is that they are finding the the challenge of making a return on on their investment in the NHS is uh, is quite challenging, quite difficult, uh, especially if they're not going to be embroiled in one scandal after another, and they're suffering a severe reputational risk. Uh, I was in um, Australia last week, and uh, I was hearing about how one of our large corporations active in taking over large parts of the NHS has been operating prisons there and uh, has suffered a very severe damage to its reputation. Now, people are now talking in Australia about its failings in England and in the NHS and um, in a globalised world, word gets around and uh, people are questioning whether these are fit and proper companies to uh, take on other contracts. So, uh, now I think that we will see that the, the serious damage risk of reputational damage is such that they they may not stay in the NHS for the long term and we may eventually get back to the situation whereby it is primarily run by uh, state agencies because they don't have to extract profit from it uh, and uh, they the experience is that they run they run the system very well and um, the uh, one of the things as well that comes through in the manifesto is the need for uh, for more, for more democracy and more bottom-up engagement and so on. What does that look like in the context of the NHS? What would a more democratic NHS look like? Well, we did have a democratic NHS, so it was under the uh, un, under political control. In that, uh, what it did was uh, could be debated in Parliament. Uh, we do we, we should remember that we do have what sh- what it should be the basis for a perfectly well functioning NHS through the parliamentary process. Uh, the difficulty is that politicians seem to want to uh, absolve themselves for any responsibility for it by handing it over to uh, what they call independent bodies but of course no bodies can ever be independent because they are dependent on someone for their funding and whoever holds the purse strings ultimately holds the uh, them to account. Uh, I think we had the uh, current government talking about liberating the NHS and clearly it hasn't worked. The new chief executive of NHS England, Simon Stevens, was required as part of his terms of uh, appointment uh, to have a meeting with the Secretary of State every Monday morning, uh, which really contradicts what we were told was the intention of the Act. So uh, I I think that ultimately the NHS will have to remain under uh, parliamentary democratic control. Uh, It's a bit of an illusion that it isn't. Um, so I suppose the last question was was the, the the extent to the what I loved about it was something that appeared in in the Lancet, which isn't somewhere where you would necessarily expect to find such a radical, passionate, clear, focused um, thing. <laughs> I thought it was really quite extraordinary. Um, to what extent can public health? drive the scale of the changes that we need what are the what are the challenges and what are the opportunities 
Well, the public health community is um, a very broad church, so it includes people in academia who can do the research to make the invisible visible. Part of our challenge as academics is to uh, identify those people around the world who really do not have a voice and to give it to them um, through means of epidemiology and the other uh, disciplines that we, we draw upon. Uh, then, of course, there are people working in public health in government who have a role to play in presenting to politicians the challenges that need to be faced. And there are people with public health skills working in the non-governmental organisations organizations that can contribute uh, through civil society. Uh, so we, we can act in all sorts of ways. I think the public health community should be seen as a group of people who have a particular set of skills, who may work in many different settings, but they're, they're united in the belief that we do need to look at the, uh, the the broader determinants of health in a population. Uh, we need to understand the determinants in an individual too, but we're particularly concerned with what we call the upstream determinants, uh, the issues that affect the health of whole populations. And we look for the, those policies that will make a difference. And those policies are typically um, the ones, the things that governments can do, uh, regulation, legislation, taxation. Uh, and that's what does make a difference. Uh, uh, not the individual actions which, while being helpful in their own right, are on a much smaller scale.